very idea, a philosophy podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm getting a lot of writing done on this uh, particular month of May after that long haul in the winter where I just um, vegetate darkly and those lush green months in spring when I vegetate pleasurably. So, as per the usual, I'm going to present you with a game where I say the name of a philosopher and you tell me who said it. I'll say the quote twice, give some hints, and uh, give you five seconds to think about what uh, that answer might be. Eh, let's go. This philosopher, he once asked uh, Thomas Nagel, so it's not uh, Thomas Nagel, the following question. What's the point of doing philosophy if you're not extraordinarily good at it? That's the quote. I guess the quote's a question. Yeah, that's a rough one to hear as uh, a thinker like myself, who's, you know, definitely on the lower rung. Um, further, this person goes on. If you're not extraordinary, what you do in philosophy will either be unoriginal and thus unnecessary or inadequately supported and therefore useless. Tough words. Let's hear that again. What's the point of doing philosophy if you're not extraordinarily good at it? If you're not extraordinary, what you do in philosophy will either be unoriginal and thus unnecessary or inadequately supported and therefore useless. Okay, let's count down. Five, four, three, two, one. The answer is none other than Bernard Williams. I like uh, I like Bernard Williams, but uh, this is a bit of a dick statement. He knew he was good, very good, you know, even extraordinary, perhaps, but assuming there's no place for others uh, grinding it out in the corners, that's kind of elitist say the least. It ignores that a lot of people thanked in prefaces tend to be colleagues or former classmates of the author and people uh, that they can comfortably bounce ideas off of and tangle with. And these people help provide the proper social context for inter-intellectual growth, you know, the proper environment. You can't always be having a conversation with Descartes or Wittgenstein, well, I guess in your head, perhaps, but uh, lest you worry about your, you know, make your loved ones and office mates worry about you if you have too many conversations entirely in your head with the greats. Also, there's the uh, sad truth that a lot of stuff gets written, published, and then ignored, regardless of whether it's good or not. Name recognition brings eyes to your papers. And if you lack that name recognition, people might simply not pay attention. There's probably a lot of extraordinary stuff lost to time. Not here, though. I'm uh, purely subpar, sad to say. On to the main of the episode. or uh, novelty, or what have you. It's not a quality to be sought after in philosophy. Philosophy, it's a fairly slow-moving discipline, and some books garner immediate excitement upon publication, but it's not met exactly with the same flair of expectation uh, that comes with the release of a single or a blockbuster movie, to say the least. Philosophy is more of a slow-burn object of appreciation. Think of uh, Gottlieb Frege, who, you know, wasn't really noticed too much except by Russell and a few others in his lifetime, but then became to be more greatly appreciated 
after he died. Yeah. Um, but uh, of course, not everyone's like that. But one book that seemed to have quite a strong impact in recent memory upon publication was John McDowell's Mind and World. Mind and World, it was widely read and debated by students and philosophers alike at the time in the better world days of the 1990s. In philosophy, the adjective recent, as in, you know, the phrase recent publication or recent book, is more on the adjective applied to the decade range rather than the uh, monthly range. Even when I started out in grad school in 2003, uh, Mind and World was still, you know, it had a certain hotness about it, even though I think it was published in 1997. So today, I want to talk about Mind and World and its ambitions and what it's trying to say or what McDowell is trying to say in it. It's a book that sat on my shelf for a long time. I initially bought it to read while I was getting my uh, tonsils removed. I thought it'd actually tackle a book while wiggling in pain in a humid uh, Japanese hospital. Did not get far, or more accurately. I read a lot of words, but grasped very little of it. So, now in the words of Brian Johnson, I'm back in the ring to take another swing. So let's get into it with the help of Tim Thornton's work on McDowell for the Philosophy Now series, where McDowell gets this uh, super close-up photo gracing the cover page that shows a man in desperate need of a beard trimmer. It's a funny series of cover photos that uh, they were used uh, were used in the Philosophy Now series by Rutledge. Charles Taylor had the uh, too close for comfort headshot gracing the cover of his book by uh, Ruth Abbey with him in desperate need of a eyebrow trimmer or a lawnmower. His brows were pretty intense though. He's uh, Charles Taylor is quite eye-catching. He seemed to work for him. Similarly, in McDowell's photo, there's an intense yearning for a beard trimmer. Check it out. It's her suit. And that is my actual first time saying the word hirsute. So I hope I got the uh, pronunciation right. H-I-R-S-U-T-E. Anyway, McDowell approaches mind and world by standing on the shoulder of giants, showing a care to place his work within the broadest of possible philosophical conversations, whose interlocutors include Aristotle, Kant, especially Kant, uh, Hegel, and the usual spe- suspects of the analytic world. Frege, Russell, Wittgenstein, Sellers, Davidson, and uh, Gareth Evans. Gareth Evans, yeah, a man who died tragically young. I don't know much about him, but I've seen some clips on YouTube, and he seems quite intelligent. Yeah. McDowell is uh, like McDowell's kind of like Robert Brandom here in that regard, in that he situates his arguments and points by reference to how they bore a contrast with those of the great minds of the past. This approach is usual, you know, it's usual in the continental world, whose members ache to find a way to show how Marx or Nietzsche or Hegel said something similar to them before. But analytic philosophy, not, uh, you know, not just W.V.O. Quine, analytic philosophers tend to prefer desert landscapes and show the bare-bones skeletal structure of the arguments in question, lest they taint their project with the uh, ghosts of the past. Analytic philosophy is well-referenced. It's misleading if I'm suggesting that it isn't, but the references are really recent and local. McDowell seems to be uh, more historical. He's definitely more historical, though, and he's quite smitten by Kant, especially Kant's, quote, thoughts without content are empty. Intuitions without concepts are blind. Let's uh, say that again, because we're going to talk about that a lot. Thoughts without content are empty. Intuitions without concepts are blind. This takes a bit to unpack here because of Kant's unique jargon, but basically he's saying our thinking without empirical or representational content of singulars like chair, table, etc. That uh, thinking, it's, uh, it's empty. 
They are just thoughts free-floating in a permanent isolation chamber, if you will. Eh? All those concepts like similarity and difference and sameness are needed to compare. Compare your experiences to one another to make sense of things. Uh, empirical or representational content of singulars in the world, like a singular chair, a singular table, without any access to general concepts like chairs in general, tables in general, without notions of similarity and sameness, etc. These things are just blind. It's just morass of sensation coming at you. In this case, we have all these uh, concepts at our disposal, concepts like similarity and difference and sameness. Yet, if without empirical content, we have nothing to compare with similarity and nothing to compare with difference. So they're empty. On the other hand, let's say we only have empirical or representational content of singulars in the world, like a chair, a table, without any access to general concepts, like the general concept of chair, the general concept of table, or any notions of similarity and sameness. Well, in that case, those empirical imp experiences, that representational content, that's uh, blind. It's blind because it's just this big morass of sensation coming at you and you have no way to distinguish one thing from the other. Like an impressionist painting with the colors running but pressed really close with, um, without any ability to uh, differentiate. So, is, that, uh, is that okay? Yeah, that uh, rotating sound you may hear now is probably Kant turning over in his grave at that uh, sloppiness of my sad redescriptions of his work. But uh, hopefully, hopefully you can get the picture from that. So, what are the general themes in mind world. Well, there's a spoiler alert in that particular title. McDowell is going to be talking about the relationship between mind and world. And, and, to tackle this rather uh, large question, one that has dominated philosophy since uh, Descartes thought, and therefore was, McDowell, uh, he delegates the answer to the broad question through a number of more specific questions. And these specific questions include, but are not limited to, uh, questions like, how is it possible for uh, thoughts to be about the world? Uh, what must uh, the world be like if it can be uh, taken in as a comprehensible experience by uh, us? Uh, does our broad conceptual uh, framework that we seem to um, come in the world with and refine as we live, does this conceptual apparatus presuppose experience? Is experience necessary for any thought at all? Perhaps because uh, McDowell is working on the most fundamental of um, uh, philosophical uh, problems. It takes a lot of uh, background to get where he can start his work. So please forgive me if I'm, uh, you know, when I omit a lot of uh, necessary background information. Anyway, here it goes. So to expand a bit more on Kant's, Immanuel Kant's thoughts about about uh, thoughts without content, quote, let's get into Kant a bit more. Uh, empirical content is understood by Kant to be the end product of interplay, of the interplay of faculties of receptivity, basically an opening of your eyes to let visual content in as, um, Singular objects, what Kant sometimes calls the affection with an A of objects on your eyes, and the faculty of spontaneity. That's the uh, conceptual process that turns what is received by your eyes into something your brain can understand. So we got uh, the faculty of receptivity and the faculty of spontaneity. For Kant, receptivity produces intuitions which have almost nothing to do with the standard gut feeling definition of the word. So don't get confused by that. Um, and uh, spontaneity produces concepts, general information with regards to all those singulars 
just cluttering up your sensory field. I like Kant, but I really don't care for his, uh, or his translated, like for his or his translated decision to use um, the word spontaneity and in, in intuition in such a, what, what I think is a non-standard way, you know? It really slows down the reading of him for, for me, anyway. But for McDowell, the fact that, uh, anyway, for McDowell, the fact that uh, basic conceptual interpretation of content is called spontaneity, that's actually telling, so it may, might not be a poor choice for the word here. It shows that uh, even when we add our own stuff to raw experience, it is done near instantaneously, spontaneously, spontane instantaneously, and without conscious thought. Spontaneous, spontaneously. I can't pronounce that word. Spontaneous, spontaneously. There we go. Spontaneously, if you will. It's immediate. It's, it's yeah. Our application of concepts. For Kant and McDowell, faculties of spontaneity and the conceptual framework that they work in is the realm of freedom. Why freedom? Well, our faculty of reception, of receptivity, it's passive. That means when we see a singular object, we receive it. It's given to us when we open our eyes and unplug our ears, whether we ask for it or not. Bam, you just saw a singular object that your concepts are going to tell you is a chair. And there ain't nothing you can do about it. Well, I suppose you could... Uh, Close your eyes. But anyway, but when we start grouping these singular objects into sets of similarity, our brain is active. The gears are grinding. And that familiar hallway that we entered into is called the space of reasons. The space of reasons. The space of reasons where we can practice our freedom as we have degrees of freedom into how we group what we see. In a sense, we have freedom. It's not the uh, Chevy truck ads and uh, Eagles flying eagle's level of freedom, but we can uh, be in error in this domain. And in that sense, we have freedom because we can be in error, liar concepts. Uh, so we might be tempted to say this passive information in receptivity that is given to us is the given. Yeah, we might have heard of things like the myth of the given before. But, you know, we shouldn't think of this as the given. Yeah, that's what McDowell tells us. And here McDowell puts on his doctor's mask and stethoscope and he takes a diagnostic approach to the word-world connection philosophical conundrum. Philosophy is diagnosis, is what he's doing. It's the task of letting the fly out of the fly bottle, identifying mistakes commonly made by philosophers that lead to philosophical pseudo-problems where none really exist. You know, and it's started by Wittgenstein. In other words, diagnosticians believe philosophers make a career of making much ado about nothing. So, McDowell's diagnosis begins with his claim that there are two common mistakes that occur when philosophers are given this dilemma of empirical knowledge as divided between active concepts and passively received data. The first is to see this passive receptivity as given to us pure experience untainted by flawed human conceptual tinkering raw elements of knowledge but mcdowell and kant they'd say no 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 it's uh it's given to us but we should not be fooled into thinking that uh, there is a pure unconceptual element to this uh, knowledge that we can be untwisted from that can be untwisted from the concepts if only you know we define those concepts fine enough with our conceptual analysis hat yeah Empirical knowledge is not some Gordian knot waiting to be untied by someone or some theory worthy enough. Yeah? This is the error of correspondence theorists, we might say, looking for the uh, Pizarro's gold of pure word-to-world -world or thought-to-world relation. It just doesn't exist. 
according to Mikel. The other mistake veers too far on the other side. These uh, conceptual people might say believe in the coherence theory of truth. These others give up the world too easily. Evidence can only come in the space of reasons. Proof for a statement can only come in the form of another statement. So what do we hear? Well, we become coherence theorists here and settle for this claim that although a world is out there somewhere, anything worth saying about it cannot be confirmed by any piece of it. Any piece of it. Correspondence pays respect to our yearning for our talk to be true of something besides more talk. Coherence pays respect to the sobering idea of the limits of our knowledge in an attempt to show how things hang together to explain our experience in the best and broadest uh, possible manner. But uh, for McDowell, uh, both of these approaches are in error. McDowell believes that although we can discuss the faculties of receptivity and spontaneity separately, the faculties and their end product, uh, they cannot be understood in isolation from one another. So strike one against correspondence theories. But we can, according to McDowell, make sense of the possibility of the role of conceptualized experience in providing this uh, friction between beliefs and the world. Only, in his words, if we can achieve a firm grip on this thought. Here it is, that receptivity does not make an even notionally separable contribution to the cooperation. Experience is to be understood as being always already conceptualized, no raw experience. But this conceptualization is not active as some people commonly suppose. Now, we can apply and most often do apply concepts without thinking. McDowell here disagrees with those who say that spontaneity is active. McDowell says conceptual thinking can have a dual role, both as encompassing active and passive engagement by the subject. The subject's conceptual faculties are passive during, you know, standard observation. When you are looking at things, you, you know, you, you're just, it happens instantaneously. You're not engaging in acting, in active grouping of singulars most of the time. It comes automatically or passively, if you will. When I see a brown bear in my path out for the stroll, I'm not engaging in a super slow process of spanning my repertoire of concepts of animate objects, colors, and sizes to find this uh, perfect fit between my sense experience and that thing which stands in my path. If I did, I would already be eaten by the time I found the right answer. It's all passive and instantaneous. A motley mix of habit, you know, experience and guesswork that doesn't need to be, uh, doesn't, the guesswork that doesn't need to be told to start guessing. It just happens. Same when we see a chair. We don't really think about what we're doing. We just say chair. We don't say chair. We just sit in it. Uh, there's no one in the control room when this starts happening, and uh, it's best characterized as spontaneous and passive. So conceptualization, we usually think of as active and receptivity as passive, but those distinctions don't really make sense according to McDowell. Both can be seen in pa as passive in some sense. This passive joint project of receptivity and spontaneity in our standard moments of experiencing the world allows us to say that in experience, one can take in how things are when we're being passive in our conceptual, using, applying our conceptual apparatus which is strike one against the co coherence theorists for those uh, randomists keeping score. So we got to stop there because I'm getting close to 2,000 words. I'm trying to keep the length of these things, you know, under control. At this point, McDowell has carved out some middle ground in the trenches between coherence and correspondence theories. And he says, you know, what's wrong with each of them? And we have to develop this a lot more and see how it holds up to scrutiny. All that next time. Thank you for listening. On the very idea 
a philosophy podcast. 